Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Analog Deterrence Center. Our host is Dr. Adam Lauther, co-founder and vice president for research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. The ANWA Deterrence Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent and its ongoing modernization. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of NuclearCast. Of course, I am your host, Adam Wilder, and today we have with us a great guest Congressman Chris Stewart, who recently left Congress, uh, has been, you know, he's, if you, if you know, Chris, you know about him, he's got a, a long and how would I describe his background? I would say for, at least for me, it's one that, uh, I'm envious of. He was a, he was a B1 pilot and one of, one of the nation's best. And then he wrote a whole series of, best-selling science fiction novels. And then he wrote some, you know, I've read a a couple of, or his latest, I think it's your latest uh, nonfiction book that was, it was really exceptionally good. And so he's, he started a publishing company. He's done all kinds of things that uh, I'm like, man, I need to get off my bum and uh, start doing more. I need to work a little harder so uh, I'm looking forward where Chris is going to talk about Congress and we're going to talk about, you know, nuclear in Congress and you know, who, who owns it and what are the politics at play, etc. So, Chris, thanks for joining us on NucleCast. Uh, Adam, great to be with you. I love what you do. Uh, love your story and your background. And uh, if we can help you share, share your thoughts and your message on what's really an important issue, and we want to do that. So it's it's great to be with you. Yeah, thanks for thanks for coming. So you were a member of the House of Representatives from the great state of Utah, and you served on. Could you tell us, you know, the committees you served on, and and then you know, sort of tell us, you know, how do committees work? Let's let's start with that. So how do committees work? Yeah. Okay, so a couple things. Let me give this a little bit of background, a little context, if I could. You mentioned I was an Air Force pilot. Um, you know, I, I flew the B-1 bomber. I flew combat rescue helicopters. I'd be up flying, and I would go, man, I can't believe they pay me to do this. Uh, I got to tell you, I, I never felt that way once while I was in Congress. <laughs> and uh, for, for some of your, some of your listeners, I, I left a couple months ago, and the reason I had to leave Congress was because my wife had a stroke, and I just needed to be home more. So I, I loved my work in Congress. I really did. And I was such an honor to be there. But uh, sometimes you have to make difficult decisions. And and that's what we ended up doing. I'm, although I'm still involved with almost all of the issues that I was working with before. So your question is, uh, you know, what is, you know, how does Congress work? How do committees work? I, I often say this, you know, going to Congress is a lot like being a freshman in high school. You know, you're kind of looking around, you go, you know, where do I fit in? Am I with the cool kids? Am I with the jocks? Am I with the, you know, the nerdy kids, the science kids? Am I a cheerleader? Um, And you really do kind of go to Congress uh, and you go, okay, where do I fit in? How can I help? At least I think most members do that. Not everyone, but I think most. And for me, with my background coming out of the Air Force and working with 
you know, strategic deterrence and, and national security, it was really easy for me. I said, I want to work in, I want to work in national security. I want to work in intelligence. And so uh, the, the two committees I sat on, I was on budget committee for a while, just kind of helping them. And more recently, I was on the special select committee, the weaponization of the federal government and did some interesting work there. But the primary focus I had was the House Select Permanent Select, uh, Committee on Intelligence, which is, again, a select committee. Very, very exclusive. It's the hardest committee in Congress to get on. It's a very small committee, uh, but it's focused, obviously, on intelligence uh, and how do we provide oversight to our intelligence community. You know, you have 17 agencies. You give them enormous power, as I know you appreciate, Adam. I mean, you give them the ability to survey, to listen, to monitor, uh, you know, everything from every phone call and, 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 and email potentially under the right circumstances, which, by the way, was abused far, far too often. And you just can't give them that kind of power, whether it's the Department of Justice, the FBI, or the National Security Agency. You can't give them that kind of power and, and then say, okay, well, you guys go do whatever you want. We trust you. Uh, we're certain you'll do the right things. Yeah, that, that would never work. Obviously, if you give government power, they will eventually abuse it. So uh, the Intelligence Committee was provided to give oversight to those communities and to, to provide guidance and to provide some leadership. Fascinating work. We had access to all of the intelligence, really, in the entire U.S. government. We had access to the presidential daily brief. Really interesting work. And then the second committee I worked on primarily was appropriations, which is, you know, we're the guys who actually sign the checks. We're the guys who actually decide this is where we're going to spend our money. And, and my focus there, although not exclusively, was on foreign affairs, national defense, and intelligence as well. So, you know, Adam, how Congress works, which I think was your original question, well, the answer is not very well, right, sometimes. Um, and it's very, very slow, very frustrating. But that's actually the way our founding fathers intended it. They wanted it to be slow. They wanted it to hopefully be thoughtful. They didn't want, you know, after an election, for example, for you know, a new president, a new Congress to come in and completely reverse roles. Now, I actually think that's necessary from time to time. I certainly think it's necessary right now, but it's still, it's still our founding fathers wanted it to be, you know, a little difficult, a little frustrating and take a little time. So in Congress, you have various committees. I think there's 21 committees altogether, you know, everything from small business to veterans affairs to appropriations to, you know, ways and means, which is tax. Each, each of these committees has a kind of responsibility over a piece of government and you know they pass legislation that you know directly affects those that work yeah and so when it comes to the you know the nuclear force writ large there's the dod component and the doe component so which committees have responsibility for those yeah there's a little bit of shared oversight which is you know fairly common it's not there aren't very many agencies or work of the federal government that wouldn't cross lines between you know, intelligence or national security and 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 uh, armed services, for example. So, um, in this case, it's primarily under the House Armed Services Committee or the Senate Armed Services Committee, but there's also overlap, obviously, on an, on the intelligence side. And then once those two committees say, okay, this is our policy. This is the, these are the goals. The uh, you know the things we want government to do. Then like all other pieces of legislation, it has to actually go to the appropriators, the appropriations committee that says, okay, we will fund these goals. We will fund these priorities, these policies that the other committees have set up. 
So the short answer, Adam, is it's primarily House Armed Services. It's primarily Strategic Forces, which is the subcommittee that has jurisdiction on that larger committee. But other committees will have a say in that as well. Now for, you know, for the DOD component, HASC and SASC are primarily responsible and then funded by appropes. But what about for the, you know, the warheads and the the energy, the DOE component? That's a, you know, that's what energy and water. Is it energy and water in both the House and Senate? How does... Yeah, so energy and water actually doesn't deal with the DOE side. It's really kind of a Title 10 or Title 50. It's intelligence or DOD money. So uh, if you're talking about commercial energy, uh, it would it would fall under that jurisdiction. But uh, when it comes to the nuclear component, whether it's in nuclear research like Idaho National Laboratories or Tennessee does, I mean, that all falls under the armed services or in the intel side. Okay. And so for those committees that have the the responsibility here, talk about what is it like to, you know, for the strategic forces subcommittee to, to go do its work? What are the dynamics at play, the concerns that shape how members and their staffs interact? Is it, you know, is it purely, you know, people's doctrine? Is it you know, what, what goes on in their, yeah their districts, yeah. what's at play there? Well, I mean, my gosh, Adam, I wish we had like five days to answer that question, right? Because it, it, you've asked a very, a very broad question with an awful lot of layers to it. Um, so let me, let me try and address a couple things briefly. Broadly, the strategic forces is, uh, has responsibility for, uh, again, our strategic forces, our nuclear forces. And that includes naval air force, you know, it includes ground as, as well as, uh, you know, our, our air deterrent, uh, includes again, the laboratories that are doing a lot of the research. And that is actually a great subcommittee. And almost all of the members on that committee are very serious about their work. They take that work very seriously. And that's, that's the good news. The bad news is, uh, if you talk about nuclear deterrence in Congress, and and I would say this more broadly, if you talk about nuclear deterrence in America, I mean, most people kind of yawn. They're kind of like, well, that's like 1980s, right? Uh, that's Ronald Reagan. That's detente. I, I often kid, but it's true. It's like, well, let's talk about shag rugs uh, because, you know, that's a blast from the past, too. <laughs> They really don't think about nuclear deterrence as being something important to us anymore. And, and of course, they're 100% wrong in assuming that. It's incredibly important, nuclear deterrence. Uh, whether it's us against our, our peer competitors, the you know Russia, or against an incredibly growing nuclear posture that China has, whether it's Kim Jong-un in North Korea. But to give an illustration of that, of how it actually nuclear deterrence and nuclear policy really matters still today. Think of the times that we've been worried in the last two years that Vladimir Putin might use tactical nuclear missiles or nuclear weapons in Ukraine. And people assume, well, he would never do that. That's not true at all. There's all sorts of reasons to have believed and to believe even in the future that he might actually resort to that. Think about the war in the Middle East right now. And imagine how more constrained Israel would be if Iran, the sponsors of Hamas and Hezbollah, had a nuclear force. 
And we know that they're, you know, they could create that in very, very short time now, but they haven't yet. But it would really affect the outcome of that war and and the and the options that uh, Israel has. It would severely limit their options when it comes to to defending themselves. And I use those as two examples about well, people think of nuclear forces as being kind of old school, but it's really not. It's every bit as much to play today as it as it ever has been. In fact, I would argue with these couple of examples, and then China threatening threatening Taiwan. It's more applicable than now. So to answer your question, I think you know now more directly after giving a little context, uh, that subcommittee works actually really well, and a lot of the reasons are because the members on that committee are very serious. They take their work really seriously. The additional challenge they have is, as I've said, it's hard to get people's attention. I mean, the new GBSD, the new ground force ballistic missile system is going to be enormously expensive. It's going to be tens and tens of billions of dollars. It's been a real challenge to convince Congress and to convince American people this is this is something we should spend our money on. Now, we were able to do it, but it was, as I said, it was very, very difficult because it was a lot of money and it's something that we had to remind people this really still matters. This is essential to our own deterrence, to our own national security that we upgrade and update these weapon systems. Now, does on strategic forces, is the disagreements prime that do arise, are they primarily, you know, fall along party lines? Are they driven by, you know, what goes on in, in districts or are they like purely ideological? What, what drives those differences yeah. that may arise? Well, I think it's a little bit of all three of the things that you've suggested already. Um, although when you talk about districts, there's a little bit of that, but not, but not a lot. Um, I mean, it's not like people are arguing, Hey, build nuclear silos in my district. Right. Um, it's not like if you're going to build a new, a new, you know, B-21 Raider that's going to have hundreds of suppliers, you know, you'd have members of Congress saying, well, you know, build some of those parts here. There's a little bit of that, but not, not a lot. I mean, the strategic forces is quite a bit different. There is an ideological or a philosophical element to this. And, you know, history shows that you go back to the 1980s, once again, where, where we were considering uh, building a very sophisticated ground mobile nuclear uh, systems here in the West, and that not entirely, but generally fell between partisan lines. Uh, some some Democrats supported it, but not not many. Uh, or or having you know tactical deterrence in in Europe. Once again, it was the Republicans were were more uh, hawkish on that than than a lot of Democrats were. So I mean, there is a little bit of a ideological or partisan element to it. That's always been true. But it's not overwhelming. It's not like, you know, some other issues that we deal with that everyone has just staked out a side. They've staked out a team and they're never, ever going to move off that team. When it comes to strategic deterrence, and I would argue when it comes to still, you know, thankfully, when it still comes to national defense, it's, it's, it's much less partisan. There's a little bit of, you know, give and take, a little bit of bickering back and forth. But I mean, passing the arm, the House Armed Services Bill, passing the National Defense Authorization Act, is almost always done with bipartisan support. In fact, almost 
historically, it's been entirely bipartisan, uh, unanimous. So I can't say that it's outside of politics completely, but it's way less political than a lot of what we see in government right now. Now, we're at that time in the show where we have to take a quick break. We're talking to Congressman Chris Stewart, and we'll be right back. The ANWA Deterrence Center and NucleCast team joins the Exchange Monitor in inviting you to the 16th Annual Nuclear Deterrence Summit, January 31st through February 2nd at the Weston, Washington, D.C. Go to our website at anwadeter.org to register and receive a 15% discount. We look forward to seeing you there. And we're back and we're talking to Congressman Chris Stewart. We've been talking about the inner workings of Congress. So if if I, you know, were the Air Force Global Strike Command commander and you were sitting in my office and I said, Chris, I need to understand Congress. What would you tell me? Or let's suppose hypothetically I'm about to go give testimony, what would you tell me to help me be more successful and my appearance on Capitol Hill? Yeah. Well, it's, again, it's a great question. Uh, well, if you want to talk about your appearance on Capitol Hill, I'd tell you shine your shoes, right? Make sure your tie is straight. But I don't, I don't think that's what you're asking about. Um, I would say probably two, maybe three things. Uh, if I were to you know, be advising someone who is going to testify on this issue, I would say the first thing you need to do is remind people, remind members of Congress and, you know, the American people that this this is important still, that it's not a, a battle that we fought and won, that strategic deterrence, nuclear forces are a critical element to keeping the world, you know, safe and stable. It's And, and that's and history has proven that. So first thing I'd say is, you know, remind members of Congress that this effort is very, very important. It's it's key to our own national security. Uh, the second thing I would probably advise them is to recognize that some of these systems are very expensive and uh, and that members of Congress have to choose between supporting, you know, building the new GBD, GBSD program, again, the new ground based ballistic missiles or perhaps building another aircraft carrier. Um, and so uh, when you remind them of the importance, accept that it's going to be expensive and be prepared to offer offsets for, okay, so it, help us spend money here and and we'll make the necessity for some of these other uh, weapon systems less less likely. Um, we will actually, you know, bring more stability to the global uh, security uh, than, the, than we would have otherwise. And I think probably the the third thing I would do was to uh, be able to talk in a, in a fairly detailed way about what these capabilities do. I mean, actually show uh, how these things deter, how it affects the judgments of our adversaries, and to be able to give examples and illustrations of where we think we've affected our own security in the last couple of years in a positive way because of these investments. Yeah, 
I, I tell you, I, whenever I've spent time on Capitol Hill, beyond the few professional staff members or, you know, like when John Kyle was there, you had a, you know, he and Tim Morrison were incredibly knowledgeable about the subject. But a, across Congress writ large, you don't have a lot of nuclear knowledge. You know, the idea of deterrence, it's, you know, it may be, you know, we're going to spend about $65 billion a year. Uh, it'll be roughly 1% of the federal budget, but there's not that much interest in it. If if you were to give me advice, you know, because I'm, I'm at ANWA, uh, part of what ANWA wants to do is to expand knowledge and understanding of the role and importance of the nuclear arsenal. How would we be more successful with members of Congress, their MLAs, staffs? What would sort of spur interest in the nuclear arsenal and, and in deterrence writ large? Yeah. Well, I think there's I think that's a great question again, and I think there's a really easy answer for that. You know, earlier, Adam, I said a lot of people think, well, we kind of fought that battle and we won it. I obviously didn't mean a nuclear exchange or a nuclear war. I'm talking about the battle to build a nuclear deterrence. But as I was talking with the former general officer this weekend, he reminded me that in the ICBM uh, silos, in the command and control silos, up until just a short while ago, when I say a short while ago, I don't mean years. I mean, I mean even now and in some cases within the last few months, they're using five and a half inch floppy disks. Well, I don't think most of your listeners even know what that is. I mean, these, this is computer technology from the 1960s, from the 1970s, and some of it bled in the 1980s, but not much. I mean, a, a five and a half inch floppy disk has enough, uh, has enough information on it. I mean, it, 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 what, 512 kilobytes or something like that? It's a tiny thing. And the reason I bring that up is to say, yeah, we did build a nuclear deterrence, but it's old now. It's 50 years old. And imagine if you took a, you know, the most the most up to date piece of equipment, whether it's a whether it's a computer or whether it's a hydraulic system, and you put it in a silo and you left it there for fifty years, and then you come back and you think, well, I sure hope the thing works, right? But you don't know whether it works because it's very very difficult to test this equipment and to exercise it. So, uh, I think one of the things is to say. We did build a nuclear deterrence. It's very capable. It's still capable today, but it has to be upgraded for our own safety and for to ensure that they work. You can't plan on a five and a half inch floppy disk to do the job. Not not when so many more powerful powerful tools are available to us now, and and that's across the board. Uh, I mean, our 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 undersea, our underwater capabilities are again generationally old. Uh, you know, the B-52, my heavens, it's 60 years old. Now, it's been upgraded over time, uh, and it's obviously has tremendous capabilities. But uh, once again, it, it just is going to take continued investment. You can't give it an old computer, you know, let it sit in your driveway and come back 50 years and expect that computer just to boot up and, and to run perfectly. Yeah, that's a good point. But it goes back to a sort of a broader debate that I we don't seem to ever want to, you know, join the debate. And that's that's this broader 
guns versus butter debate. And, you know, it's if you look at the federal budget, the federal budget, you know, we're spending four percent under four percent of GDP on defense at a time that's, you know, more dangerous than ever. And during the Cold War, we spent generally between five and nine percent of GDP. So we're spending less than ever. We are if as a percentage of the federal budget, we're spending less than ever. And, you know. Just Medicare and Medicaid alone dwarf the the defense budget, not to mention everything else. So I, I wonder, when it comes to this debate between guns and butter, how does how does Congress really sort of weigh that out and and come down on one side or the other? What are the sort of the key decision points? Yeah, well. You know, I, I talked earlier about how some of the defense policy is is a little bit bipartisan, and, and that's true, and that's good. But this is one area that is the most partisan, and that is, okay, how much money are we going to spend? Uh, once we decide on a top-line number, this is, our, this is our defense budget, it gets easier after that. It is less partisan. But the discussion about how many billion dollars are we going to spend on defense, and to your to your analogy, and and if we do that, then we're not going to buy any butter. We're not going to be able to, you know, help our citizens in this way. That is a contentious debate, and it has been for you know for a long, long time. You know, probably not only decades but centuries. It's been a, a difficult debate, um, and that's where advocacy and information is is important to people. And and Adam, you know, you bring up a, such a great point that I want to elaborate on a little bit, and that is the 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 relatively small amount that we spend on defense, um, and and here's some frightening some frightening realities. You know, I remember two years ago, it might have been three years ago, we were we were really really pushing for an additional twenty billion dollars in defense spending, and it took us months, and it took dozens of meetings and just huge effort, but we eventually got an agreement to spend an additional twenty billion dollars in defense. And there were specific programs we were going to spend that on. Again, a huge effort. You think, well, $20 billion, that's a lot of money. But then think about this. This year, this year, we're going to spend more on interest than we are going to spend on our entire defense department. Interest on the national debt. We thought that might happen by 2033. But with the rise of interest rates, that came crashing down. And uh, that accelerated and brought all that forward. So this year, we're going to spend about a trillion dollars on interest. And uh, and that squeezes out all these other budgets. So I, I compare that with the, how we fought so hard to get $20 billion, and yet that's overwhelmed by a trillion dollars on interest alone. You talked about Medicaid and Medicare. I mean, Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security... Those are mandatory programs. We don't get to decide whether we fund them or not. They're, they have to be funded. And it leaves only a tiny portion of the government to where we can decide, are we going to buy guns or butter? About 30% and shrinking, by the way, shrinking really quickly. And defense is only a small portion of that, of that part of the government that we can actually decide how we'll spend the money. So it's difficult, especially with this enormous pressure that our debt is putting on us now with these incredible interest payments we have to make. Now, it's, of course, that time in the show where I like to bring out the genie Bob. And as I rub my magic lamp, Bob pops out and he grants three wishes to all 
to all of our guests. But remember, they got they have to be related to the topics we've been discussing. So no world peace and no, you know, riches or fame. So if if you, Chris, are, are going to make your first guess or your first wish, what would your first wish be? For the next year, is that kind of the ROE on this? Well, I mean, it can be for, you know, you can pick the FIDEP or you can pick whatever, but it just needs to be related to our topics. Well, I'm going to, it does relate to topic, but it's going to be, it's going to be a little more broad. Uh, the United States has been, as we've been called, the essential nation. We are, an ex- the, uh, I believe in the idea of American exceptionalism, that we lead the world, whether we like it or not. And, and a lot of us, take that responsibility really reluctantly. In fact, some people resent it, but whether we resent it or not, it's still true. We're the glue that holds the world together. I think my first wish would be that, uh, that we're able to continue to do that, that we would accept that tremendous responsibility and try and do it in a smart way uh, and, and try to provide not only for our own defense, but to provide some stability among the world. Now, having said that, Adam, really quickly, I'm not uh, I'm not at all a proponent of we're the world's policemen. We've seen that over the last two decades, how nearly impossible that is. My first wish would be that just Americans appreciate the extraordinary country that we've been given and would fight to preserve it. That's a, that's a, of course a good, uh, a good wish. So that's, that's a good start for wish number one. How about wish number two? Uh, wish number two would be that, uh, that very, very sexy airplane, the B one that I flew, uh, would be continued to be funded. It's a great airplane and it has tremendous, tremendous capabilities. That's a very selfish wish, but I love the bone. What a great airplane the B one has been. Well, so, uh, I'll throw out an, an option for you. Um, so whenever, whenever we decide to create the United States, nuclear force and it's its own independent service what i would propose is transferring the b1 to air combat command to be the primary jet for conventional uh conventional bombing missions it's it's great for that so that that's a that's a perfect way to keep the bone in the air so that's wish number two how about wish number three and i can't wish for fortune or fame no, no fortune. Well, you've already got good looks. You've already got fame. You've already got success. I mean, so. All right. So here's my third wish uh, that you'll invite me back on your podcast and let's keep the conversation going. Oh, that's a great one. That's a great one. Well, thanks for Chris. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Nuclecast. It's been an honor, Adam. Thanks for the work you do. And thanks to you, the listeners, and we'll see you on the next episode. Well, a great interview with uh, Congressman Chris Stewart. He's uh, such a such a nice guy. I've gotten to know him over the last few months, and he's a truly good guy. Uh, and it's interesting to hear his perspective on how Congress works and uh, just the challenges, and you know where there's opportunity to work together. It seemed to me he was be, he was being kind, uh, um, at least if you read the stories about the vitriol and you know that's going on in Congress. Um, I think uh, Chris was maybe kind to, or maybe you know, maybe that's uh, there is a lot more 
collaboration or maybe it's, you know, like he said, the House Armed Services Committee and Strategic Forces Subcommittee, maybe there's a lot more collaboration there. And so that's, that's a good thing. So it was an interesting interview. I hope you liked it as well. This has been a production of the NWA Deterrence Center, a 501c3 that seeks to educate key decision makers, stakeholders, and the public to ensure a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Crumpel. Help us grow our followers by sharing it and follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at NucleCast.